where we have conversations with musicians and poets, jazz artists, storytellers using the arts as their way of sharing their missions and visions. So today I have a young gentleman and I say that in deference to his older age. Uh, <laughs> he gonna get me when he comes over here. Uh, illustrator, drummer, creative, consultant, author, educator, and visionary. And you know, a lot of artists are known by, you know, a singular name, like you got Miles, Coltrane, Duke, Basie. Today we have with us a drummer extraordinaire and just a fantastic artist. And I call him my brother and I'm proud to do that in the name of Kim Pedro. Welcome to Spotlight Conversation. Blessings, blessings. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. How you doing? Why are you grinning, man? Because you know you didn't said some stuff that was, you know, back in the day, warrant to when it is, right? <laughs> I told him. I I'm said, about old, you know what the fair one was then. Yeah, oh man, oh man. I knew I knew you was gonna, you know, I knew that was gonna hit a soft spot, but that's all right. So I'm glad, I'm glad uh, that you took the time out from your schedule because I know you're very busy. Um, you know, between, you know, teaching, you know, gigging and traveling all over the place, just sharing your gifts. Um, so thanks again for joining me. Thanks for the invitation. Listen, let's start off by a lot of people that may not be familiar with you. Tell us where you're from and who okay. were some of your early musical influences. I'm from, I guess you say the suburbs of North Philadelphia. I grew up in Spring Garden, right there in North Philly. <laughs> uh, that area was so laid back, it was like the suburbs. Um, if you know, if you wanted to label it, it, that was like the epitome of the melting pot. You know, we had a little mm. bit of everything in that neighborhood. So culture was alive and kicking, and that was a very vibrant neighborhood in Philadelphia. And because of that, we were targeted. But anyway, that's where I come from. Um, some of my early influences were some of the drummers from the different cultures that lived in that neighborhood. You know, you come outside every day, you know, you can hear, you know, those drummers out there. And that's probably the seed that they planted for me to become a drummer. Um, as far as musical influences, listening to gospel with my grandmother, I got an idea of um, what it was like to really think about the music or what the music did to make you think. I got influenced by that. Also learned how to play three, four, and six, eight times listening to gospel. So that's what, that was a big influence. Musically, wow, so many different people I listened to back then. Um, a lot of Motown records on Sunday afternoon on the mm -hmm. big hot fire in the, in the living room. Everybody sat around playing 45. Um, believe it or not, <laughs> Lawrence Welk, Tom Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck, Andy Williams. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, watching, yeah. Those band, watching those bands, listen to those arrangements, you know? Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, we started, you know, we finally got Soul Train and, you know, some of the other shows. But um, the early influence came from the music that I listened to being around family. Hmm. Were anybody else in your family musically inclined? On my father's side. My mother's side were artists. My father's side were musicians and vocalists. Where did you uh, uh, go to school? Well, I started out at Waring over at 18th, you know, 18th and Green. And then I ended up at Masterman through this experiment they did with the neighborhood kid from Spring Garden. Um, but when I got to Masterman, I found um, out they had drum lessons. But I only got drum lessons after something that I was told as an early age was proven wrong. I went to assembly one week in Masterman 
and excuse me for my, you know, for the adjectives I use, but they're only ones I can use. This little white kid was playing drums in the auditorium. His name was Little Davy Lang. And he was playing to a Michael Jackson tune. And he was he was funky. I mean, and from what I was told growing up, white people don't have rhythm. But to see him play those drums and everybody in the auditorium get excited, I was a little confused because if I'm being told white people don't have rhythm, what is this kid doing on those drums? So seeing that and being told he doesn't have rhythm and watching what he did, I said, well, if he can do that and he doesn't have rhythm, I know I have rhythm. So I'm gonna get us a shot myself. So that, you know, when I found out that he was taking lessons there at Masterman with Leonard Hutton, who was a famous cat amongst really, you know, drummers in the public you know, school system. Mm -hmm. um, I studied with Leonard for a little while. Wow, that's a, that's a heck of a story. And going back to something you said earlier, the last time I heard the term hi-fi, hi-fi, <laughs> you know, that, you know what, that right there shows our age like a mug, you know what I mean? High, high fidelity, whoa. That's right, console, yeah. console, yeah. TV, turntable, eight track, radio yeah <laughs> and it looked Talk. good in the corner <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh that man <laughs> we had to, it sure was it sure yeah. was it sure was and we had the one with the first we had the one with the, the whole top flipped up and yep. you had like some albums on the side yep. and yep. you had the man that's yeah that's bringing back some memories right there i like to have one now yeah yeah because the sound out of them was dynamite too. Right, and right. then, and then, you know, you can't beat, I mean, we got CDs, we got MP3s, we got all that kind of stuff. Nothing beats the sound of vinyl. It was vinyl, it was vinyl on those consoles that I listened to to learn to play the drums. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know, <laughs> the thing about it was, you know, you had to work deal with snap, crackle, and poppy thing, have a good diamond stylus, you know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. <laughs> but you, you have to drop it and time it, man. I mean, if you want to play the kit, if you want to play the song, right. you learn good timing, you learn good prep time, and you learn how to be, you know, be on time for the downbeat. Yeah, you're uh, also C CEO of Paper Bag Graphics. So let's talk about that a little bit. That's a, cra that's a crazy story. I mean, um, Growing up, I used to get toned paper because I didn't like drawing on white paper. It just didn't do anything for me. Even though I did in school, when I got home, I liked to draw on toned paper. Never thought anything of it. Time goes by, um, late 80s, I fall into my addiction and I don't have money for art supplies. So I go to the corner store and I ask the guys in the store who knew me, can I get a couple paper bags? So from that, I started sketching what I was going through in my addiction and creating a series. Police were interested in it because they were seeing images that they never thought of coming from this, you know, this, this a, a cocaine culture. So I did a lot of sketches, did some, did some real, um, like, um, call it political cartoons and stuff on paper bags, created a nice little collection. When I got arrested, they put them up, but while I was in prison, Pennsylvania Prison Society came into the prison and they did a um, program once a week. The gentleman who came to teach the program, after having a conversation with him, I found out we went to some of the same school. He and I both went to Philadelphia College of Art. 
So with that being said, we developed a relationship and he started bringing supplies into the school. I mean, into the prison. And that way, when he wasn't there, I could teach the other inmates. Because since he knew my background, he said, well, you know, you're qualified to teach the inmates. So he would bring me supplies back and forth. And one of the things that I asked him to bring me in exchange for me, you know, teaching the inmates was a big roll of garbage paper. It's that big brown mm. roll of paper that everybody uses to wrap stuff up and pay no attention to. So like I said, between the paper bags at the corner store, using those, and then graduating to the, the brown paper, um, I did an exhibit while incarcerated. The exhibit drew um, a lot of attention. I was in a, back when we had the, uh, the bulletin, I was in the bulletin and it was on the cover of the bulletin. Uh, the art exhibit was called, uh, They've Been Framed. Hmm. And it featured artists um, from the Philadelphia County uh, prisons. Um, Third Street Gallery down in Old City, major event. And they even allowed me to come out. So I put 15, I put 17 pieces in the show. And of the 17 pieces, like 11 of them were on paper bags or the brown paper. We framed, we matted them, we framed them. And it was everything from a portrait of Sammy Davis Jr. who had just passed that year. Hmm. Um, Nelson Mandela had come home from prison. Um, I drew a, a real colorful African ritual, um, like a mating ritual. I brought some sketches actually from home from my senior portfolio that were on tone paper, one of um, of Bob Marley, with the reference of um, the creation with David finger almost touching God's finger, the Michelangelo piece mm -hmm. that was that was in it. Um, the, the 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 logo for paper bag graphics, which was a paper bag, real, you know, really rendered with a cat coming out of the bag and some groceries, and then it was to let the cat out the bag, paper bag graphics. Um, so it started there. When I saw how sex, how successful it was at the show, of the um, 17 pieces, I sold 13 pieces, and most of those pieces that I sold at the show were in a paper bag. Wow, nice. So I thought, you know, why, you know, why abandon that when I come home? So when I came home, started doing greeting cards, um, greeting cards, album covers, CD covers, um, major illustrations. And the second reason why I stopped drawing on white paper as I came to a little awareness is um, most of the people that I drew were people of color. Didn't make sense for me to get a white piece of paper and use all those supplies to get that white piece of paper to a shade of brown that was gonna represent us. So I started from the way that they measured us back in the day. You know, they took they took the paper bag and said, if you were lighter in the paper bag, you come in. If you were darker in the paper bag, you couldn't. So I used that paper bag as the middle tone to develop my people when I draw people of color, which is what I do mostly. Wow, 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 that's something else. And well, I had the pleasure of receiving two of those pieces of art uh, for a Spotlight on Jazz and Poetry. And one of them was I think it was the the show from 2014 that we had, the live event that we had. And I, I can't, re you know what? I can't remember. Jazzmatic Journey. Jazzmatic Journey. Yeah, that's what it was. And it was a picture of, a, well, you remember it better than I do. And I have it and I own it, but you're the artist. So tell me where, you, you know, what you were thinking about when you drew that. Well, for the fact that SOJP brings in artists from all regions, whether it's national or international, I wanted to find a way to make sure that I represented everybody in this drawing, as well as, you know, represent you. 
So I drew this, one of the songs from one of your artists who were here that year, Monica Herzig. She had a piece um, called um, Yellow Taxi, I think, the Italian Taxi. It was called The Italian Taxi. And I thought that's the one thing everybody who comes to your show, because this is, this is pre-Uber days, you know what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> so, everybody, <laughs> so everybody that came to your show had an experience with a taxi cab at, at one point or another. So we took the concept of her song, Italian Taxi, and we took something that represented each of the artists that you had on that year. And try, I tried to create an icon for each one of them and stuff them and their instruments all inside that taxi. The only thing that made that taxi Italian was that underneath underneath its PUC number, it's that child. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, just a, you know, it was just a nice way to show, you know, my appreciation for bringing me into that. And also to showcase, you know, what my, one of my gifts were. Yeah, and the, the second one was, I remember the second one, because I, I have that framed, uh, was represented SOJP's uh, 20, I mean, excuse me, 10th anniversary. And uh, had a picture of me, it was a, you caught me real good, I have I to say. And I don't do portraits, I don't do portraits. That's yeah, why you, I blew me away too. Yeah, you caught me, you caught me real good. Even the part where I'm looking over the top of my glasses, <laughs> which is, I guess, and I've been told that throughout my glass wearing years, that that's like my, you know, that's my trademark, I guess. But, um, and so it was signed, work. yeah, and it was signed so by, you know, a lot of the people that were in attendance and the uh, the artists. So it was cool. That was a really cool. I like that uh, the your whole paper graph, uh, paper bag graphics. Let's talk about your drumming. Now, like I said, you came in in 2014. How did you get invited to participate in that program? I paid. I paid this cat like some two thousand dollars or something that I met in this club, and he told me he could put me on. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know about the two thousand dollars though, because I'm, you know, one of them struggling, one of them struggling uh, people too. But um, now I was actually um, you were interested in my little sister, Kendra Butler Ward, and she and I happened to be playing together at Triumph. And I don't know if my name had been bounced around or not, but you came and checked her out. And my thing is when I do a gig, I work the room after. So my, right. you know, when I'm, when I'm walking around asking everybody, is it too loud? Is the music okay? And all that. You and I had a chance to have a conversation. And then from that, I couldn't get rid of you after that. <laughs> <laughs> true. That's very true. That's very true because um, uh, we've been together since then. So that's what, eight years? What 10, eight, yeah. No, it's, yeah, eight years. So um um now you are I asked you to become the musical director, musical coordinator, um for artistic, Spotlight on Jazz. Artistically musical director. Artistic musical <laughs> director, yeah, musical director. So many, so many different names. One day, look, it'll be one thing one day. And then the next day it'll be the same thing, but it means the same thing. It's yeah. like so many different different uh, adjectives or whatever and describing it. And um, you took that on, and um, you know the program has it was already good. Yes, it was. You know it was already a good program, but we had to we had to go to a different level. It had to go up. It had to elevate. And 
you know, I saw you as being the one that would be able to lead that charge. And so far, it's been doing just that. I mean, we've been doing some really good things. Um, Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And especially throughout 2019 was the first one. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was Musis in Motion. And that was just a fantastic program. My wife took part in that program. Um, you know, she was a participant right. in the program. And, you know, I had no idea what direction that was going to go, um, you know, with the program, Muses in Motion. But you made that thing come to life. Talk about that for a minute. I know you had some good, uh, some good uh, stories about that program. Well, first, you know, I just give honor to God for me being able to even write that on my business card as far as a visionary. Because, you know, God gives me visions. When you give me words, God gives me visions. And then what I try to do is I try to capture that as quick as I can, no matter what it might be, whether it's involving, you know, some visuals, involving some music, involving some script, and trying to keep being led by the spirit, you try to keep it spiritual. And the thing that gave it me a little challenge with that was the fact of there was a lot of Greek involved. Greek gods and goddesses and demigods and all that sort of thing. So I was just trying to make sure that when we did do our representation of it, we didn't, you know, we didn't, you know, uh, call, uh, participate in any blasphemy or anything sacrilegious. But just trying to keep it real safe. So the little research found out that there were nine muses that inspired the artists of the uh, the Greek culture. The, uh, the artists of science and religion, as well as, you know, art and music and literature. And in taking advantage of that, knowing that we had more than nine women in the show. And they all, and if, <laughs> now I'm not saying this to get slapped in the face by anybody later on after you hear this, but, um, you know, our women love to be beautiful and have being paid attention. So that was an opportunity for each of them to come out in their own character, taking, you know, the attributes of whatever muse that they chose and come out and personify that muse with their own spirit. And they had, a, they had a good time doing it. Their fabric, you know, transformed them into whatever it was they thought they were. They danced, they moved, probably like they never would thought about moving like that in public by themselves. Mm-hmm. But they had a good time and brought them in. But the reason why we did that was, for one, you always want to make people when they come to a show, be involved one way or another. Everybody likes that 30 seconds of of fame. So getting people involved inspires the people sitting around them to want to be involved next time. So now you've created a buzz about your concerts. That's important when you're trying to market something. You don't want to just be another concert where everybody comes in, these musicians go down a list, everybody says goodnight, everybody rolls. You can get that anywhere. But your concert, because of the level that I saw your concert being for the years that I've been with you, I thought your concert needed to offer more. It shouldn't even be a concert, but it should be an experience. So it was to make sure that we were able to erase that line between the audience and the musician and interact and engage freely. You know, and like this, like you wanted for, um, for 2022, you said, you know, jazz music was dance music at one time. Mm-hmm. So for the first time we ended your concert with dance music. Yeah, oh yeah. And it was, you know, even though we we kind of strayed from jazz, but it is jazz. Mm-hmm. What we played that night was class, you know, was American Black American classical music. Mm-hmm. It just didn't, it just didn't swing the way everybody expected it to swing. 
Right, right. Yeah. I'm saying, but it's just important, you know, when you have the responsibility of taking somebody's vision and somebody's baby and to, you know, you give creative license to them, you can't come back with something mundane, something that anybody else can put together. And I'm not saying I did anything spectacular, but it's important to me to maintain that level of proficiency and unexpectability. Because the more unexpected I am, the more successful I am. Because people are wondering, what you going to do next? What you going to do next? Mm-hmm. And that's good about you, too, because now each year they're going to say, wow, what's Clay going to do next year? We did this, now we did this. What's next? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you sang to them this year. You you know, you, you you blew their mind when you did your thing, Mumbles, man. That was something <laughs> that they they never expected. <laughs> and it was successful. It was successful at rehearsal, because everybody at rehearsal was loving it. They know it's going to yeah. kill rock. And it did. That guy sitting next to you, his mind was blown. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. just being able to catch people off guard without offending anybody, is, a, is you know, is, is a blessing. It's a blessing from God to be able to put those ideas in my heart, share them with you, and you agree with them. That's that says a lot. You know what that whole thing comes from? Um, not the you know, because I'm. I think I'm starting to get better though with the singing part. Though. I don't know. I might break <laughs> out. You know, confident. you're getting more confident. Yeah, I might have start having the bow tie flutter up and down while I'm don't while get I'm no singing. Suit, suit, man. Don't get no suit. <laughs> oh, oh, I got, oh, oh, I got to connect for that now. I got to oh, connect. We, for that. we gonna call you sugar coated clay. Oh my goodness. Oh man. So you know, but I know 2019. You know that was. Uh, um, you know, my wife, like I said, she participated in it. And that was the, she had always, Vicky had always been involved with the program in one way or another. But out, you know, she was more like, uh, she liked to be behind the scenes and doing things and offering suggestions or whatever. But this time she was out front and she really got a kick out of it because she talked about that for a long time afterwards. Um, then 2020 came and the pandemic. So we had already, you know, we'd like to get ahead of the game, you and I, you know, what's the title of the next show going to be? What's the theme going to be for the next show? And it was, we narrowed it down or came to the conclusion that it was going to be Ascension because that's what we try to do is to ascend higher and higher, go to, a, you know, um, higher levels with the, with the program. And the pandemic came and we didn't get a chance to do it. 2020, there was no event. 2021, there was no event. You know, but during that time, I had some, uh, you know, my family was changed forever when my wife was, um, you know, had got sick and, and transitioned in 2021. So, you know, going through that process was, it was, devastating but one thing i had that i could hold on to besides of course the the memories of a long long you know time being with with vicky and my sons was sojp because i'm just in love with that you know what i mean i'm in love with the sojp baby um yeah yeah um and watching it grow is almost like you know not close to but it's like watching my children grow, you know what I mean? Um, so the the title Ascension took on an entirely different meaning 
once my wife transitioned, once Victoria, you know, transitioned uh, to be with the Lord. Um, so I decided to make this 2022 event was a tribute to Victoria the entire weekend because it's a weekend event and we had to come up with ideas which was very easy talking to you since you're so spiritual um you know and like you said a visionary it was easy to figure out what we were going to do um so the Friday evening part of the program or part of the event was dedicated entirely focusing on stuff that Vicky liked to do. One of them was party. So we, did, you know, we we showcased uh, uh, poets, you know, featured poets, which was new, right? Cause we used to do just like I have an open mic or whatever, right? but we decided to feature two poets that were familiar with Vicky. So we didn't have to explain, look, we'd like you to do this, this. They had their own vibe and their own thoughts about Vicky and what they wanted to present. And it went over so very well. It went over very well. Then Saturday was the concert, quote unquote. But just talk about it. Just talk about it. Well, first, you know, like you said, um, when you came up with the concept for Ascension the first time, my thinking was somewhere totally different than where it was on 2022, because we didn't have those same kind of emotions at the time. My whole, my even my set list was completely different for Ascension. And it took on a whole new meaning once we lost, once Vicky, once Vicky transitioned. I mean, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, as far as the presentation, the songs, little things that I thought about doing in between, everything changed. I think the only thing that stayed the same was the concept that you said you wanted to do as far as singing Happy Meeting. That was the only thing you had um, committed to for that one. But then the pandemic, me losing friends, me losing work, me not understanding what how things are going to be on the other side of this because gig workers and artists were the last people that they thought about. And when they did, when money did come through, we didn't get it right away if we got it at all. So it made it, it was a time where I had to really look to God for help. And then looking, looking to God for help, that meant you just looking to God for not only sustenance, but also how to maintain my creativity without going, I can say creatively insane, you know? And people laugh when I said that, but I said, you know, just the other day I was telling somebody, I said, the inside of my head is like the Los Angeles freeway. And you know how many cars are zooming by on how many mm. lanes, on how many levels. And I said, every car that zooms by in my head is an idea. Every now and then I catch one, but then there's like three or four that got by me. And then if I park that one, I forget it's parked sometimes. So it's like mm. crazy for me sometimes to just get organized. And through that time, I went through depression, but a whole lot happened during that time. And the ascension thing is always there because you, you know, you always tell me, come on, don't waste the last minute, man. We gotta give them those. When you got three months left, when you got four months with and even though you said that I'm just going through this process of ascension, ascension. So it took on a whole new meaning. Now, not only were we talking about lifting up, now the goal was heaven. You know, so in, in that, the song started, you know, coming to mind as far, all right, what's what's a good song? And then the challenges came. Like for instance, 
Angela Bofield's tune was the first thing that came to me because of the message, the rhythm, the style, but it was also a very complicated song, not only for myself, but for the rest of the musicians, because it jumps from time signature to time signature to get those that whole message across. So it being a spiritual pro, you know, project, when I gave it over to God, he took care of everything else because it's very rare do you get musicians who say, hey man, you know what? I listened to that song and I don't think one rehearsal is gonna be it. Can we schedule another rehearsal or can we get together away from everybody else and learn that? That said a whole lot about how God was working through this whole ascension thing. Cause you don't get that from musicians without them having you to pay them a fee for that many rehearsals. My musicians rehearsed in a, a total of four times before that show because they wanted to make sure that not only were the songs right, that we were able to deliver the message that you needed to be, you know, that you needed to have that night. We were worried about, is this going to be too much for Clay? I said, I asked him, he told me, bring it. So they were concerned about that too, because it was getting us at rehearsal. You know, some mm -hmm. of the songs were touching nerves with us. So that's why we knew that it had to be, you know, I don't want to sound corny, but it had to be his will. These certain songs and the way we perform certain songs was even some of the songs we perform. We don't, that's not how we perform them regularly, but this is how we thought we needed to perform. Mm -hmm. And the personnel, you know, couldn't ask for a better situation as far as personnel. And here's the beautiful thing about it, as far as spirituality, we've got Christians in the group. We've got Buddhists in the group. We've got Israelites in the group. And we, we recognize our commonalities and respect our commonalities more than we concern about our differences. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. And then the spirit of God walks among us and the creativity that comes out of us in some of these situations, it blows us away as well. Yeah. Like when we finally got an understanding of how to play that, you know, that Angela Bofield tune. It was a relief to everybody, even though we still didn't play it right at the show. You know, it's a couple of places where I know I dropped the ball, but it has, it's, it's a complicated tune. But had we not spent the time together, we probably wouldn't have been present that much of it. But well, you know, the only, only right. the people that knew where certain things were supposed to go would recognize that. But trust me, after uh, you had Bethlehem Robinson, 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 rather, excuse me, yeah, uh, do that song, and she. She knocked it out the gate. She knocked mm -hmm. it completely right. out of the ballpark. Right. You know. And the, um, the other thing, the other thing fantastic. about the other thing about that song that I thought was important too was, if you if you remember on the original recording, there's a guy playing strings with a synthesizer. There's a lot of stuff going on with in the string. That's why we had Kendra play violin instead of her play synthesizer. That way it authenticated those strings because, you know, the synthesizer was just, like I said, synthesizing strings. Having the real strings gave it a whole nother level of texture. And also just a whole nother and another vibe that, you know, yeah. you guys weren't expecting too, but it didn't take anything away from what you needed to hear to recognize the song. And then at the end, <laughs> and then at the end, this was so, you know what? This part, and we had a couple of like uh, we had a couple guest speakers. We had a a poet uh, that stepped up, and it was the first time that she had ever did a poem in public. And her name was uh, Poetic Serenity, 
And even her poem was geared towards them. And remember, she's from, she just came from out of the audience. She was unplanned mm-hmm. or anything like that. And the poem that she did played right into what the message was for that entire weekend. And that was just amazing. Um, you know, of course, when she was sitting back probably and listening to where everything was going and the messages that was going, she probably went into her bag and said, you know what, this poem is one that'll fit, you know, but she was dynamite. And then my niece got up there, Tyra, and, you know, she basically did testimony. Right. And, you know, because, you know, her and her and Victoria were real, really, really tight. And I knew that we were close, you know, my niece and I, but I didn't realize from her end how close she felt mm-hmm. to me. And she came out with that. I'm sitting in the back, you know, after listening to Poetic Serenity do her thing and then listening to Tyra, I'm sitting in the back. People looking at me like, hey, you crying? You all right over there? <laughs> you know, oh, so that was... <laughs> yeah, Lincoln, yeah, man. Look, look, I said, no, I'm not crying. I just got a little tears by little allergies working. But, um, you know, it was a fantastic event. Um, and, you know, people are still... People to today, that was back in April. This is July. And people are still talking about it. And, you know, they were ready to come out. We, you know, we, we keep, we talk, but we forget about your fundraiser back in um in February, which shouldn't be overlooked either because the amount of people that came out and supported you for that, that was something new for you as far as what SOJP does. Yeah, yeah. That's something, um, that's something, that was a new concept and it was a successful concept. Yeah, it, it was. And, and um, you know, now SOJP has a nonprofit side. Um, SOJP Inc. and to which you're one of the board members. Like you said, I can't, I can't get rid of you. Um, you're all over the place with this yeah, SOJP thing. The adoption paper should have been there by now. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's right. You already gave me your social security number, so that's already set. Um, but um, you know, we plan on doing a lot of a lot of really good things with SOJP, and um, like you said, that was a fundraiser that most of the people that were at the fundraiser came and supported the show. You know what I mean? And we had at this fundraiser, it far it far outdid what I thought the amount of people or support that we were going to get. I was thinking 35, 40 people. We had close to 90 people there. Okay. You know what I mean? We had, yeah, we had close to, we had close to 90 people. Seven, between 75 and, and 85 people came because some came and left you know they had other events that they wanted to go to but they wanted to show support for the uh you know for the fundraiser and um you know we did we did pretty well with it for the first fundraiser out the gate so yeah and that proved and that just proved also how hungry they were to be a part of a sojp event too right but people right. don't people don't come out in the winter man especially if it's cold and it was cold after that day yeah yeah it was it was yeah. february right yeah, yeah february 12th Yep, that was Valentine's uh, Valentine's weekend. Right, and it was right. yeah, it was yeah, it was still nippy out there then. Well, it was very cold. nippy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know that was just uh, 
that was just a, a wonderful event. So you travel in a whole lot of different circles with musicians and, and artists and what have you. But who were some of the direct artists that you not, well, I guess patterned your, your drum style, but gave you, um, um, you know, inspiration to really get into the drums? Papa Kenyatta. If you don't know who Papa Kenyatta is, Robert Kenyatta. Papa Kenyatta was like one of the first African-Americans to tour with the Beach Boys. Um, did some stuff with, a lot of stuff with Coltrane, Wilson Pickett, um, Sonny Rollins, a lot, a lot of sessions. You can actually, if you YouTube, uh, you can find some of his clips on Soul Train <laughs> with mm. possibly Wilson Pickett. Um, but I sat with him and he taught me anything that wasn't a pocket groove. So in other words, world rhythms. He taught me that he, he told me that if I wanted longevity in a career as a drummer, learn the world rhythms. So in other words, mambos, cha-chas, you know, um, salsa, um, even reggae, and I can't think of all the styles right now. But he said, learn the world rhythm. And that was something that I took serious because I found out later on that some of the most killing drummers can't play some of the world rhythm. And then when somebody said, oh, play a Latin rhythm, you know, I asked them, which one? You know what I'm saying? Because when you say Latin rhythm, cats think it's all one rhythm. But Papa Kenyatta was able to give me that information. Um, so him, Byrd uh, Lancaster, taught me about being free. You know, we had a chance to play with him before he passed. Um, Tyrone Brown, bass player, mm -hmm. Ty legend Tyrone Brown, had a chance to do a couple sessions with him. And, you know, jokingly one night I asked him, I said, man, you play with everybody from Max Roach to... I can't even name some of the cats you play with. I said, who's your favorite drummer of all those cats? He looked at me and he smiled. He said, you, Kim Pedro. <laughs> so even though, even though I know he was humoring me, I appreciate him just taking the time to say that. But yeah. then again, I found out there was some, some sincerity to it. Because I, I get an email from him like every other month, just touching base, tell me what he's doing. I mean, so people like him, um, Jamaluddin Takuma, First time I played out in public with Jazz Guardian, we didn't have a bass player, we needed a bass player. Um, me, sax player, Dim Hotep, who's playing guitar for Sunrise. So we're playing down at the Middle East. I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to know about Yeah, 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 that restaurant. That was down 3rd Street, wasn't it? Yeah, right, 2nd and Chestnut, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we would go down there to the open mic. So, you know, so it was our turn for the open mic. We're inside the stage. And we were going to blow up as a trio, no bass player. And we asked Jamal Adin. Jamal Adin didn't know me or any of the guys, so he kind of brushed us off. He said, no, y'all go ahead and play, y'all go ahead and play. So we went up, we played an original piece, and then before we came down, we played Pinocchio, Weather Report's Pinocchio, because we had a sax play, guitar, and drums. So we're playing Pinocchio. And when we come off the stage, Jamal Adin looked at me and hits me and he says, damn, if I had on y'all gonna play that shit, I would've played with y'all. <laughs> so, that, that, <laughs> so that was inspiring. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, it's a lot of stories, but I think right now the biggest story and the biggest influence for me is my love for Miles Davis put me in a circle of cats right now that um, only God could orchestrate. A few years ago, maybe 2015, 2014, 2015, they um, dedicated, I think it was, um, I forgot the name of the street, maybe West 77. They dedicated it to Miles, they called it Miles Davis Way. A friend of mine, 
and I had befriended Vince Wilburn Jr., Miles's nephew, who played with Miles on a couple of his um, classic electric albums, befriended us and invited us to come up as his guests to the dedication of Street. So me, Tim, and Leo Gadsden from the Producers Guild, we drove up. Not realizing how big of a situation this was, I really wasn't prepared. But the first person that we see when we get up there is John Amos. You know, him, then we see Bobby Humphrey. Then we see other cats starting to stroll up. Carl, uh, Carl Allen, uh, yeah, Carl Allen walks up. Um, Nino Sinelu walks up. You know, then we see um, what you call it, Jimmy Cobb walks up. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like a who's who of Miles Davis alumni. And people start walking back and forth. Cicely Tyson goes into the building where he used to live. Um, but anyway, so that circle opened me up to um, having conversation with all my favorite drum heroes, Mike Clark, Steve Smith, um, who else was in there? Lenny White, um, uh, what you call it? Uh, oh man, uh, Thelonious Monk, you know, Junior and all that. I mean, all, anyway, all these cats. But it was a relationship with Vince Warburn that in turn, Lenny White, and now Lenny White and Vince and Mike Clark and a who's who of other cats who I do a Zoom thing on Friday nights with. I think you would enjoy this, man. I'm gonna get you, in fact, I'm gonna get you to get an invitation for you to come and sit in the Zoom one night. Mm -hmm. But um, they've become inspiration. They've even given me critiques on the music that I'm currently writing now. Which, in, in when I when they listened to the music and they caught me by surprise, was Lenny submitted it. I didn't submit it. Lenny, Lenny blindsided me and submitted the music. But the critique I got from everybody was like really encouraging. So Lenny White proved to be the drum hero that I thought he was as a kid. Now, during these yeah. times, he proved to be a real drum hero. So he's a big influence. A lot of the things that I try to do are based off of him, Mike Clark. You know, I, I stopped trying to do Dennis Chambers a long time. He sits in that room too. But um, the drummers of, um, I try to mix a little bit of everybody into my playing and I gotta put it, everything that I listen to from the classical to the punk or the grunge, to the fusion. I try to find something out of all of it. And from the conversations of all those people that I've talked to, using that to create who I am behind the kit. You call mm -hmm. me an awesome drummer, an incredible drummer and all that. I can't you know, really uh, latch hold to any of those titles or any of those accolades or adjectives or whatever. I'm just led by the spirit. And sometimes I'm not, I'm obedient. Sometimes when I'm not, you can tell. Sometimes I'm resistant. Sometimes I go with the flow of the spirit. And when you when 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 that happens, you can tell that also. So my thing now is just really being able to learn to trust the spirit when I play. Because I realize everything we do is God working through us. It's never us. Mm. Our flesh doesn't allow us to do the things. Our ego creates this image of that we can do those things. But it's not the same thing when you hear it as what you think your ego is telling you you're doing. So right. Right. Learn to kind of fall back and you know not get, get in my head about oh I'm that cat yeah I've been playing for thirty years ain't shit you can tell me you know I just started playing the moment I picked up my sticks mm. that's how long I've been playing mm. every day is a different experience who knows that the same things that I did yesterday I'll be able to do today right. today maybe a whole different experience behind the kit every time I sit behind the kit it's a totally different experience a yeah. totally different flow of energy I try to record the days before so I can compare. But I don't know from the, from the time I, I get up now and walk away or to the next time I sit down, I don't know what to expect. Yeah, that's, that's, being, honest, that's being honest. That's, uh, um, you know, I was talking with uh, another legend, um, Pat Martino, mm. uh, guitarist from, from South Philly. And um, he recently uh, transitioned as well. Right. Right. Um, 
but he's one thing that he said and you know he had a brain aneurysm that almost took him out of here years ago right and and he survived that and had to relearn he had to he had to figure out um why everyone thought he was so important you know what i mean so he said from you know once he got himself back together he said he just lives in the moment in the moment and that's exactly what you just said um you don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow or tomorrow you know something might happen today you might play a certain way and then the next day you might have a an epiphany and decide hey i'm going to play it a little different you know this time that you know so in the moment living in the moment is very right. and when my and when, when one of my music musicians will say to me man if you keep if you play like say for instance i have a gig tonight and tomorrow night this i'm not looking for accolades but i am looking for admonishing or i'm actually looking for correction if i play well i'm gonna say praise god anyway so you don't have to worry about trying to gas me up but i am looking for honesty like if i didn't swing right or if i was too heavy here or if i was if i sped up but to hear a teammate say man hope you play like that tomorrow night well if you play if you play like you did last night we're gonna be all right mm -hmm. That's new to me because now I think I have a little more confidence in trusting, you know, myself being led by the spirit. And I'm not as resistant as I used to be because I thought, you know, what I listen to, what I experience should be what I play. Mm -hmm. and, and it may not necessarily be true. You know, Monica, even Monica said something that I didn't pay attention to. First time I played with her and I was concerned about not messing her music up. And she said, Kim Pedro, you're very sensitive to the music. And I think that I attribute that sensitivity to the fact of I know who I am, I know what I can and know what I can't do, and I do everything I can not to reveal those weaknesses. Hmm. So just being, over, I'm a little more in tune, I'm listening with one ear, I listen better than cats before. You know what I'm saying? So because yeah. of the fact that I know that I really got to, you know, zoom in and really be intent. Sometimes, you know, it may take me a couple of times, sometimes I can pick it up, but you know, definitely led by the spirit because of the fact of one ear you know yeah yeah um so um what projects are you working on right now do you have anything that you're working on or what can we look for in the future man i'm gonna tell you i've learned to be a juggler you know i used to juggle with three balls now i got four and five it, it, it stresses me out but um if I could just get organized, Clay, you know, there would be so much to look forward to. <laughs> mm. So right now, right now I'm working on getting the you know the final edit of this manuscript so I can take it to to, to a real editor and get it printed because I have a target date. I want my target date to be the same day that I was delivered. And if you know and if you follow me, you know what date it is. I'm not gonna say it, but it's, it's in the fall. Um and I'm hoping that I can line up the release of the music and the book around that date. Um, but I'm working on a manuscript that's like a memoir. The intent of the manuscript is to show hope and redemption, even in the depth of addiction. Say that five times. <laughs> um, using, using my story as the example, you know, um, a lot of people don't know that I was, um, I was addicted, incarcerated, rehabilitated, and, um, by the grace of God, I'm still here to talk about it. 
Mm. And my first shirt is going to say, I live to tell. So, so, but um, yeah, um, using examples of what I went through and the impact of my spirituality, even if I wasn't praying, the power of intercessory prayer and how intercessory prayer helped guide me through that adventure, you know, of um, the incarceration, well, the addiction, the incarceration, and then um, not having an ego to, de do, to do the rehabilitation. Because at this point, I'm already broken down. You know, I'm, I mean, I've, I've, I've walked my barefoot walk through hell. So what's worse than that, you know? Mm. So that's the project I'm working on, hoping that, you know, we can turn the manuscript into a screenplay, um, do some, sell the presentation to black box theaters, churches, and community centers, drug organizations. But the only thing about that is um, I can't get a partnership or a sponsorship from NA or AA because I said their programs were nonsense. And I think I've told you before, you know, it's a brainwashing. I thought it was a brainwashing technique. I mean, how are you going to tell me to find a high, you know, whatever your higher power is, it's cool. You know, the higher power, obviously, to most addicts is the cocaine. So if God is not a part of the equation for me to be successful, I can't deal with that problem. Hmm. So what's the, what's the title of the manuscript? <laughs> the title of the manuscript is called The Sixth Hour. It's called the sixth hour because it's taken from a 12 hour story. Each hour could be anywhere between one day and 15 years. And the reason it's like that is because me being a drummer, I'm a timekeeper. God being God, he works in and out of time as he pleases. Me as a drummer and a timekeeper, I have to learn how to be on time, slightly ahead of time, slightly behind time or even take time and manipulate it to make you think that I'm out of time. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, you know, just a, it's a contrast between my handling of time and God's handling of time, which is two, to two totally different ways of handling time. So we don't know in God's year how many days it is or in God's 10 years, how many lifetimes that is. So it's just a, it's a play on that concept. But the sixth hour is also entitled Kim Pedro's Greatest Hits and Other Cocaine Related Stories. <laughs> All right, so we, we're going to be looking for that in the fall then, right? I'm hoping so, yes. Yeah, 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 that's cool. So It's going to be a treat. It's going to be something different from what you know you bought from a bookstore before. Mm. So um, you have also are the founder of New Groove. So talk about New Groove a little bit. Um. When I first started playing music back in, when I first started playing professionally back in the 90s, played with the R I played with a 10-piece R&B group. Then we formed Jazz Guardian. Jazz Guardian operated for like 20 years. Papa Kenyatta was our mentor. DM Hotep and I ran the organization. And we went from the Jazz Guardians to Jazz Guardian. When we had the Jazz Guardians, we had a saxophonist who was a founder back then. But we made some changes. He decided to go in a different direction. We became Jazz Guardian. We did that for 20 years. Excellent musicians group. But the one thing that was missing in that musicians group was a spiritual base. And because we all had different beliefs, although we conducted good business, business didn't really flourish. Mm. And, you know, I could never understand why. I'm not saying that that was the actual answer, but it just felt like that could have been part of the problem. So in, um, when Jazz Guardian decided to go in one direction, 
because DM Hotel started touring with Sunrise uh, Orchestra. And it didn't make sense for me to keep booking Jazz Guardian if the personnel from Jazz Guardian were available. So I formed Musicians Network. That way I could pull in all the musicians that I have been working with for as long as I've been working with. I can pull them in and I could pull them in for what their specialty was. Instead of, you know, there's an old, there's an old Parliament Funkadelic song that says, who says a rock band can't play jazz music? Who says a jazz band can't be funky? So to avoid having those questions, you called me to do Ascension. The musicians in Ascension had multi-disciplines that allowed us to, you know, to jump across genre lines. Um, some of the projects require me to have cats that can, that, 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 that can bop all evening or cats that um, are R&B cats. Like for instance, what we did uh, for the fundraiser, that was a more R&B jazz type vibe with El Barak and Dante. Um, so, new, so what New Groove does is um, creates a platform and a base for artists, not only musical artists, but for audio engineers, videographers, photographers, um, choreographers, dancers, you know, whatever your creative discipline is, there's a place for you here because during the years of Jazz Guardian, I developed a lot of relationships and also we developed a dependability on being able to provide a creative service, whether it's providing an artist, whether it's providing a, an educator or a musician for a particular event. So now people still call me, but now when they call me, I have a little bit more of a, I won't say sturdier foundation, but a foundation that I know is going to support me doing what I need to do. Mm. So it's been, it's been 10 years now for a new group. So obviously, well, I can say obviously, I say God must have um, some love for what we do here. Yeah, because cause, uh, it's very reliable and it's dependable and it's always, you know, it's always very creative. Um, because like I said, every program that New Groove or that you've been in charge of has just been phenomenal. I mean, that's all I can say about it. Praise um, God. You know, had to pay for that stuff, but. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was worth the investment, I'm sure. Because <laughs> if it wasn't, I wouldn't be getting an interview, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, I've been, look. Now, I don't even know why you said that, because I've been trying to get an interview with you for a long time, brother. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, I'm glad I finally got a chance to, um, you know, to get you, uh, you know, to zero in on you and your time so that you could uh, uh, have this conversation. You can't forget about the one we want to take care of us. We can't forget about the children. So if you went around that car and read them titles, you can't leave out educators. Yeah, how about that? You, we got to touch that? on that. We've got to touch on that because that's important to us as an organization as well. Well, you open the door, let's go. Yeah. So yeah, um, never thought I'd be an educator, but um, the opportunity to be able to plant seeds at an early age and give children options letting them know that what they see is not all they get, is not what they get, that there are other things available to them. You know, and being, a, I'm so I'm a creative arts. In fact, what's crazy is my supervisor let me choose my own title. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a recreation specialist on paper, but he introduces me as, you know, the creative arts specialist, you know, because what my thing is, you know, I don't go with a prepackaged program when I go out to the children. I go and I sit with them, I talk to them, in fact, 
before we can even be creative, I do like maybe 15, 20 minutes of social service just to see where their heads are at. But after we get past that, I let them talk to me. I ask them questions about music, find out what they know about music, ask them about dance, ask them about, you know, uh, writing and drawing and find out who does what, who raps, who sings, who breaks, you know I mean? Whatever whatever that they're, they specialize in, that's what I want to teach for that session. Because mm -hmm. I want to, I want to strengthen my, you know, I go in with them, I tell them, I'm the superhero finder. I'm here to find superheroes and develop superheroes. And amongst our children, that's well received because our children are always looking for hope. They're always looking for a possible way out. Mm -hmm. I took that same conversation to a neighborhood that was gentrified. And I'm using this adjective again as a descriptive, not for any hate or anything with two little white boys who are obviously privileged. Nine years old, I think the oldest one was. That's folders on. That's nonsense. How are we superheroes? So I had to break down a conversation with him and find out, all right, first of all, who he was, what he likes to do. And after going through the conversation with him, found out that if he tells his parents he wants something, they give it to him send him on his way. So he's cool with that. So I said, when's the last time your mom and dad told you they believed in you? What do they believe in? What do I have that they believe in? Crazy, right? For a nine-year-old. But his mm. parents are the type of parents where they're privileged. They give him what he wants, send him to his room of technology, very little interaction with him, very, no, no planting, no seed, you know, not telling him that he's worth anything, to, even to them. Maybe even they don't even say they love me. I don't even know. I'm guessing now, but I'm saying, but that's what I dealt with from a white little boy. A little black boy sits up under me and asks me questions. How, Mr. Kim? Can I be like you, Mr. Kim? And I tell them things that encourage them. Oh, yeah, you can be like me. The only thing that separates me from you is the amount of time that I had to practice. You start practicing an hour every day. By the time you get to my age, you'll be as good as me. I might not be around to see you, but you'll be that good. Hmm. And they think about that and they show up every day with their sticks ready to go. These little boys decided they didn't want to come to my class because it was corny and they didn't believe I could make them superheroes. But as they saw these little black boys and this little white girl progressing in my class and moving from uh, a latex pad to an actual drum, now they're interested. But hmm. they didn't want to, they didn't want to start at the bottom because first of all, I didn't have anything to offer them because I'm a black man. What they knew about black men wasn't what I represented that day. I wasn't angry. I wasn't trying to take anything from them. I was trying to tell him that he was something special, but he didn't even want to believe it because first of all, he didn't even acknowledge who I was. Hmm. I mean, the rest of the kids called me, you know, Mr. Kim, Mr. Kim. He didn't even get direct with me. The dialogue between him and I was like, that's nonsense. How am I, how are we superheroes? You can't make us superheroes. And the first thing he says, I want to fly. So I didn't even, you know, I didn't even dignify what he spoke because I had something for him, but then I would have had to deal with parents at that point. Right. But I had to pick, I had to pick and choose certain battles with these kids. And there was another little boy who was standing with him, peer pressure. He didn't want to get involved. But the day that this other little boy wasn't there, that other little boy was there every day after that. Hmm. So it's, I mean, that's the battle that we're dealing with in the city now. These gentrified, these gentrified little minds that these parents. These parents are treating them like they're, they're adults instead of children. Mm -hmm. Wanting to be their friend. 
Exactly. And just accommodate them instead of disciplining them and rearing them like they should. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't that yeah. but doesn't that go back to the uh the black nannies of raising their children? Mm-hmm. And my grandmother from uh um uh, you know, was from Sumter, South Carolina. And um you know, and as I got older and got a chance to talk to her about, you know, because I never knew that she did any kind of work at all. But she had all this property. She had a whole bunch of respect. And it was just, you know, she had cars. And I'm like, where did all this stuff come from? I never see you do anything except for sitting on the back porch. You know what I mean? Talking with people you know, going to church or whatever. But coming up was when I realized I seen all these like big album, you know, photo albums. I mean, she had like 10 or 15 fat joints like that. And I started looking through them and I seen her with a bunch of white kids. I mean, pictures and pictures, and I'm talking about pictures that dated back to you know, in the 50s, in the early 50s, before I was born, you know? And I was like, Grandma, what is all, you know, who are all these people right here? And she told me. And that's how she made her money. She made her money that way. She um, had taken care of one white family whose daughter was, you know, was pregnant, had the baby. And she, she was in something. They were in uh, Columbia. So in order for them, for her to take care of them, they had to send for her. So they sent for her on, you know, she rode the train or whatever, went there. They, she had a place to stay, of course. She was fed, of course. She got paid of course, and, you know, she was transported back and forth. And, you know, she basically took care of the child until the mother had recuperated and was able, you know, to take on the responsibility. But she was the nanny, excuse me, like you said. And that's how she made her money. Look, that one family blossomed into like over 200 to 300 families and they each would have daughters or whatever they would have offspring and they would call for Eugenie call Jeannie call Jeannie and she made a lot of money and we talking about money under the table right we talking about cash man don't be yawning during my interview man I promise you well, you can edit uh, this part <laughs> no oh that stays in this all stays in. But, you know, talking about the nanny uh, thing. But that's also your your expertise with, you know, being an educator is also why um, with this nonprofit, SOJP Inc., we're going to not only be spending time and, and trying to teach and um, let the community become aware of the history of jazz and poetry and writing and music, but also literacy we're going to take up and not only working with the children but working with adults as well right you know what right. i mean and also not just with reading and writing but also with financial literacy 
because I know I'm, let's put it like this. My sons are investors. I didn't think about any kind of investing or anything like that when I was coming up. I wasn't taught that. The, the most we had was the PSFS. You remember that? Philadelphia yep. Savings Fund Society. Yep. And we used to take money the, every Tuesday. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And we would bring 50 cent or a dollar or whatever you had and put it in your bank and, and that would be your savings. But you'd be That's excited what, when you saw the violence at the end of the school year. You're like, oh, oh yeah. Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, but that whole education side is so very important. And they took a lot of that from out of the schools. You know what I mean? They took it from out of the public school. But, you know, we all know that they, it was done with a purpose. You know what I mean? Because back in the day, we used, I remember seeing kids. Matter of fact, I was one of them. They used to walk around with the violin cases and yep. trombone yep. cases and, you know, the drumsticks and all that kind of stuff. And yep. then, you know, the, the artists, the little portfolios. You know, me all the way around, yep. Yeah, and then all of a sudden yep. you don't see it anymore. So it's, there's some programs like that. Now here's something yeah. crazy, which I don't think I told you either. You know, through the performing arts, I this is my first time actually being director of the performing arts program this year. Hmm. Well, that's all right. Yeah. So I'm just I'm getting briefed about that now because if, if this is something I like, man, I think I might hold on to this, and that's that that'll open some opportunities for us too. Yes. For um. Or what you want to do with the nonprofit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they might so, be able to create it. Might be able to create a day where you can actually come and talk to the children. Yeah, yeah. Because that thing we did quit. No, I'm saying because um, the way I put I put together the program and the schedule for the summer, and I was talking to my supervisor earlier today, and I mentioned to him that I had some people in the network who said that if there was a day during the week that I could use them to do a presentation, would that be okay? He said, I don't see why it would be a problem. So there's a possible way in these next six weeks where we could possibly make an introduction somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are little cool. these are little people right now. This is from five to ten year olds I'm working with for this summer. Yeah, well, that's all right. Yeah, so I don't know what we would talk to them about just yet. We talk about that, but here's a way to get it in. Yeah, yeah. Well that's Especially a, as performing artists. That's a that's a good age. You know, the yep. younger the better. Um yep. You know, so um, in closing, in closing, are there any gigs coming up that you have that you would like to share? And if you have a website, please give us that information. And if you would have any advice for any young people that would like to get into the performing arts or um, you know the visual arts what kind of advice would you give them so that's a lot of a lot of questions i gave yeah i mean won't you go one question at a time you know i went to public school man one question any gigs coming up soon yeah um in fact if it doesn't rain on friday i'll be at the porch at 30th street from 12 noon to 2 p.m and i'll be with marcel bellinger mike boone and kenny rosario Pugh. And I'll actually be uh, performing some of the songs from the upcoming CD, as well as some other stuff from my repertoire. And that's 12 to 2 at the porch at 30th Street. Um, and then let me see other outdoor concerts. And then the following week, I'll be doing two concerts on the 16th, both of them outdoors. 
The first one will be at 37th and Aspen, the Miles Mack Recreation Center. It's the Young Great Society's reunion. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Young Great Society. Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. So that's from 12 o'clock to 2. And then that same afternoon at 5 p.m., I'll be at Fisher Park for their jazz festival. And that's both on Saturday the 16th. Sunday, July 24th, I'll be at 22nd and Ridge Avenue for Jazzing on the Ridge from 4 to 7. Bring your lawn chair for that one. And you can... Um, the website is under reconstruction, but you can still take it down. It's it's www.worldofkimpedro.com. But you can keep up with me on Instagram at Peace Power Percussion. And on Facebook, Kim Pedro's New Groove Network. All right. All right. So um, <clears throat> you said what advice I could give the young people? Yes. See, I knew you had all, you knew all this stuff, man. You're up here putting me on the spot. I'm trying to see how old you are, man. But um, the best, I think the best advice I could give a young person is realize that we all have specialized gifts. We all have specialized skill sets. Take time and find out what it is that you're really good at and work hard to develop it and become the best you can be at it. Don't be concerned with fame or fortune or being a celebrity, because once you get that skill set to the point where you can manipulate it and use it to do everything that you intend to do or dream of with it, that fame and fortune or that celebrity will find you. There's a scripture that says our gifts usher us our gifts make room for us and usher us into greatness. So if you believe that you have a gift, make sure God's in the center of it and let him do all the work. As long as you do this, realizing that he's responsible for that creativity that you have. And creativity and spirituality go hand in hand. Mm. Yep. Well, that's, some, that's, some, that's some great advice. I, I thoroughly believe that, as you know, with any, any meeting or... or endeavor that I, you know, am a part of or put forth, I always ask for the aid of a deity. And in my case, it's, it's Jesus Christ. Um, so thank you, sir, for taking time out from your busy schedule uh, to be with us here at Spotlight Conversations. And I wish you continued success in, all of, your, in all of your endeavors. Praise God. All right. So, All ladies right. and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us here at Spotlight Conversations. And I hope you have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next time right here on Spotlight Conversations. Peace. <laughs>